following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So while we're singing, I'm hearing a lot of sniffles, and I don't know if you hear my voice. i got the sexy voice going right now. Uh, that's what I call it. Uh, allergies hit early this year, and man, they're hitting hard. How many? Is anybody else in here suffering? There's a few of us. It reminded me of a time, uh, I was thinking about it because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, tired, not just because of the time change, just because of the allergies, but uh, when Jamie and I were in college, we were on a drama team for a year. This is partially how the Lord ended up putting us together for marriage, so we're very, I was very happy for the drama team. I've told the story before that I don't do drama, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible actor, I really am, but the day that we had to do the rehearsal was was a day just was open rehearsals. You just walked in and I was kind of forced into it by a friend of mine just to go along because he said I was, I had nothing else better to do. So I agreed with him and went. And it just so happened that as we went into the room to sign up, um, you, who, who's going in right in front of me? It's Jamie. And I already liked her at this point and she kind of liked me, but it was kind of awkward. You know that stage, remember that? You know, and it's that moment. So she signs her name and I sign mine and they call us up by a guy and girl, because the scene you had to read was a, a, a scene with two people who kind of liked each other, but were nervous. <laughs> and so who gets called up together? Her and I. And so we're up there, and of course, I'm really nervous, and she's really nervous, so we look like great actors <laughs> at the moment. She is actually a very good actress, but I am not, but that's how I got on the team. Um, however, once I actually was on the team, and it was all said and done, and they started giving out parts... I think the guy who picked me realized I actually couldn't act, and so he made me the narrator, which I can do fine, so it worked out in the end. But it was on that team, this is where I was going with that, sorry. I'm not feeling good, so I'm just going to want meander. Uh, it was uh, that year on that team, we did a special event. We did a reader's theater, and we did uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Magician's Nephew, if I remember correctly. And so we had spent weeks and weeks preparing for this. It was like a big formal event. You had to buy tickets and so people are out there, and we're all supposed to be up on the stage kind of during the dinner doing this reader's theater. And uh, the day of, I got sick. And I didn't know with what yet. I'm just, I was, I was feeling it all day long. You know how that feeling starts coming on you, and you're like, man, this is, not, this is not good. But I couldn't back out. There was no one to take my place. So we get up there, and there's six of us, or seven if I remember correctly, on the stage. And I'm on the very, very end, thank the Lord. And I'm standing there like this, and we get started, and we're reading, and the more I'm reading, and the more I'm standing there, and the lights are shining, I'm feeling worse and worse. And eventually, I think, I'm going to pass out. I'm going, it's, I'm, I'm going to pass out. What do I do? Because you, know, you just like off the stage onto the floor, or do you get sick in some other manner? So I decided there was nothing to do. It couldn't be helped. I just, as soon as I had got done reading a particular line, I just walked off the stage to the horror of everyone else standing on the stage because there was no practice for this or no like plan of what to do should somebody just instantly leave. So I left. I walked around the back of the room and ended up laying on the floor in the back. I had the flu, I found out, later that uh, the next day. Um, but So they all had to panic and figure out how to manage that. So should I get sick in the middle of this, Chris or Jordan or Caleb or whoever's up here, I don't care, Glenn, Rick, one of you, somebody jump up and we work it out from there. We're going to read, again, this is a part three of a three-part study here on the torture and execution of Jesus. We're going to read verses 16 to 41 here in Mark 15, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. 
And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, or as we learned last week, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, we're coming now into this passage that is so central to our faith, so critical to our understanding of salvation, and I pray that you will help us to understand it rightly. Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to see the real significance of what's going on here. I pray this time would be honoring to you, Jesus. Speak to us. Change us through it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned it a moment ago, and it was not planned originally, but how many of you do enjoy the uh, book series, The Chronicles of Narnia? Anyone in here read those? How many have actually read all seven books, just out of curiosity? They're very good. If you haven't read them, you should. Uh, if you're not familiar with them for some reason, they are a series of, I guess you would call them fantasy slash adventure books that were written by C.S. Lewis that have a clear allegorical reference to the scriptures. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept of allegory from a liter perspective of literature, an allegory is a story that is really telling another story. It, it uses concepts and ideas from one thing in a different way or to refer to other things. In Lewis's books, the story he is telling at surface level is about the adventures of four children, at least in the first book, about four ch children who go to another realm known as Narnia. And there in Narnia, they have all kinds of adventures, and you meet people like Aslan, you meet the White Witch, you meet Mr. Tumnus, and so many others. But, but that's just the surface level. At a deeper level of his story there, there is a lot more truth being communicated. 
And ever since we started studying the crucifixion of Jesus, there's been one particular scene from the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that has been on my mind quite a bit. And so I'm going to do something a little unusual this morning. I want to read it to you. It's my next reader's theater, I guess. Uh, hopefully it works out better than the last one. But uh, just bear with me for a moment while I read part of this to you. I'll set it uh, up for you a little bit. In this scene, Aslan, the Lion King, he's the kind of the Jesus figure, has agreed to do something in order to rescue the traitor Edmund. Now, the people in the story don't know exactly what it is that he has agreed to do at this moment. But in the middle of the night, he leaves the camp. And as he's leaving, nobody's aware of it but Edmund's two sisters, Susan and Lucy. And so they secretly follow behind him to see where he's going and what he's going to do. And on the way, he stops. He knows they're back there. And he calls them up to himself. And they talk a little bit. And he says he has to do something. They ask why. He says, I can't explain it right now. They want to walk with him. He says, okay. And they go up to a certain point to a place called the Stone Table, which is an ancient site where deep magic is, is associated in the story. And he says, look, no matter what happens, you two have to stay here, hide, be quiet. You can watch what occurs, but don't, don't react in any way. And so he leaves them there. He walks up to the Stone Table where standing there over it is the White Witch, the enemy of Aslan and all of her followers who on any other day would have run in fear at the sight of him, but not, not this day because a ceremony is about to take place. And we're going to pick up from that point. Lucy and Susan held their breaths waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave, though, had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh, then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch, let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back and the children, watching from their hiding place, could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another. And they surged around Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, how many mice have you caught today, cat? And would you like a saucer of milk? Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, jeering at him. At last, the rabble had had enough of this. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table. 
some pulling and some pushing. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords. The cowards, the cowards, sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him even now? When once Aslan had been tied and tied so that he was really a mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags holding four torches stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel, and it was of a strange and evil shape. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still, quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you had saved the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and it covered their eyes. Now at the surface, this is obviously a made-up story about a lion being killed by a witch. But as all of you who have been here over the last couple of weeks now recognize, there's a lot more significance to what Lewis is writing here than what appears just at surface level. He is alluding to the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we come back now one last time into the text here looking at this story of the torture and crucifixion of Jesus, I want to show you something that is kind of similar here even in Mark's gospel itself. There is a surface story here. Now this one is not fictional like Lewis's was. This is a real story about real events that occurred in history, but at the same time, even here in Mark, there is a deeper significance of events going on, and we need to see that this morning. Now, when we left Jesus last Sunday, he was hanging on the cross. He had been scourged, which now hopefully when you read that in the future, going through the Gospels, you'll understand in, in detail what was happening. A man named Simon, as you recall, had been forced to carry his patabulum, that's the cross beam, up to Golgotha where he would have been crucified. He had been stripped naked. He had been attached to the patabulum. His titleist had been attached as well. He's been now connected to the stipes. His hands and feet are nailed to it. He is hung in the air for all to see. And Mark told us last time that all of this, those events of crucifixion, occurred at the third hour, which in our time would be 9 a.m. in the morning. So this was a rather early execution. And as we pick up now here in verse 33, we see that Jesus has been hanging on the cross now for three hours. Mark tells us that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So if the third hour was 9 a.m., you do the math, what time is it at the sixth hour? It is noon, okay? So he's been hanging there for three hours. And Mark says that at noontime, when, when the sun should have been at its brightest, a darkness descends over the land. And this isn't, just so you understand, it's not just some kind of eclipse or 
weird thing that's going on. I actually looked it up because I was curious, like, what's the longest eclipse ever? And, and I read that astronomers estimate that the longest eclipse in thousands of years will occur on July 16th, 2186. And the estimate is that if you are just north of a city called Anna Regina in northern Guyana, you will experience an eclipse of about seven minutes. Now, that's a really long eclipse, seven minutes of sun gone. This is three hours or more. This is no just a regular eclipse. Mark says it begins at three, or excuse me, at noon. It's going to last until 3 p.m., the ninth hour. And if you're wondering about the significance of the darkness at this moment in time, hold that thought for a moment and consider another question that we need or another detail that we need to see here. Mark says in verse 34 that at the ninth hour, after the three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to point out a few things about this verse as well. First, at what hour does he cry this out? It is at 3 p.m. And it's important to understand that in that culture for the Jews, this is about the time of midday prayers. The Jews pray three times a day in the daylight hours, at morning, at midday, and at night. And so at 3 p.m., as Jesus is hanging on the cross, after hanging there for six hours, he begins to, to cry out this prayer. And think about what it would have taken even for him to have said this. As I showed you last week, when you're hanging in that down position, you cannot breathe. And if you cannot breathe, you cannot talk. So in order to say anything, he has to lift himself up into the up position, which is excruciatingly painful, in order to get something out. This is what he says. And this is the only saying of Jesus on the cross that Mark records. I know there are others. I'll mention one in a few minutes. But, but it's the only one that Mark's record, Mark records, and I want to let Mark be Mark, so it's the only one I'm going to deal with. It's important also, secondly, to recognize that in line with this being the hour of prayer and him lifting himself up, that the only words that come out of his mouth here are the beginnings of a prayer. It's, it's a cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see how Mark translates these words for us. Eloi means my God, not in a, a way of taking the Lord's name in vain, if that's what you think of. It's, it's a cry, God, my God, why? He's calling out to him. Uh, Lemma means why. Sabachthani means you have left me or you have abandoned me. And when put together with the Lama becomes a question. So it's a prayer being prayed at the hour of prayer. And thirdly, and most importantly, you have to recognize that this isn't just any prayer. Did you realize that when Jesus is crying these words out on the cross that he's actually quoting scripture? Specifically, he is praying the opening line of Psalm 22. And you say, well, why is he just saying the opening line? Well, first of all, in his <laughs> physical condition, it would be really hard to get much more than that out anyway. I mean, how long could he hold himself up in that up position after six hours of hanging there? So you, that's part of it. But even in Jewish culture at the time, it was very common to refer to an entire section of Scripture, an entire passage of Scripture, by simply referencing a line of it or a, a concept. You know, we see that in the New Testament. This is like the place where such and such was written, and it just makes a comment in general. It's not just referring to the comment made, it's referring to the entire context. And so as, as Jesus here, as he begins to cry out this prayer, it is my belief that he is referencing the entire psalm as being his prayer at this particular moment in the crucifixion. And in light of that, I want 
to read the entire psalm. I'm going to put it up here so you can look at it. I want us to read it slowly, and I want us to read it thinking very specifically of Jesus, of his context. After all that we've seen the last two weeks, look carefully at the words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by all mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your heart, hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. After six hours of hanging on the cross, and all that he has gone through after everything that has happened at the hour of prayer, this is the prayer of Jesus that he references to God. 
And this psalm is obviously several things all at once. I mean, we could talk about any one component of it and spend our entire time plus more, but I'll give you just three things that it definitely is. For starters, it's obviously a prophetic account of the crucifixion of Jesus given in great detail hundreds of years before anything had occurred. I mean, you see here every detail in Psalm 22 perfectly fulfilled in this story, every single one the mocking, the wagging of the heads, the things, uh, even the things being said by the mockers to some extent, his physical condition, he's poured out like water, bones out of joint, heart like wax, strength dried up, uh, hands and feet are pierced, his garments have been divided. I mean, Psalm 22 is the crucifixion, told again hundreds of years in advance, and we could spend the rest of the morning just talking about that, but that's not for today. Uh, Another thing it is, it is an indication of Jesus' confidence in the midst of his suffering. At the beginning of the psalm, you very much hear this cry to God, why, why, which I would just encourage your hearts. God is not afraid of why, okay, just so you know. He, he, he's crying out, why have you abandoned me? Why is it like this? And yet, despite all of his suffering, despite all of his unanswered questions, by the time you get to verse 27, he's saying that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And that all the families from all the nations shall worship before you because kingship belongs to God and he rules over the nations. See, he's, he's affirming his confidence that despite everything that he's going through right now, even stuff perhaps that he doesn't understand, which I don't know is necessarily true in Jesus' case, but in the psalmist's case, that, that God is going to use it in his plan to bring his glory to the ends of the earth. So he has a confidence in the midst of his suffering. But, but the third thing, and the one that is most important to me, is despite this confidence in the eternal, or in the eventual, excuse me, triumph of this act in God's eternal plan, please, folks, hear this cry as the honest cry from the mouth of one who has been, for the moment, abandoned by God. Let's not downplay this or think that it's, it's unimportant. It is I don't know if it's right for me to say it like this. I think it's the most important thing. It is definitely the most astonishing thing to consider, I think, in light of the entire crucifixion that probably even explains the darkness that has descended over the land because whenever you look in the Old Testament, darkness is an indication of God's judgment. We saw an example of that even in Mark 13. I think it was verse 34, 24, where where Jesus was describing the coming judgment of God. And he says, when the day of the Lord comes, the sun will be darkened. You get this language, okay? That when you see darkness descending on the land, this is a sign of God's judgment. Except this time, the judgment isn't being poured out on the land. It's not being poured out on the disobedient children of Israel. It's not being poured out on sinful humanity. It is being poured out very specifically on the Son of God. For the first time, most likely, in all of eternity, in ways that I cannot begin to understand and definitely could not begin to explain to you, God the Father and God the Son are not one. I don't even know what that means exactly. I don't know how to understand that, but but the father turns his back and abandons his son. Not because of his son's sins, not because of anything Jesus had done, but because God had laid on Jesus the sin of all humanity. Your sin and my sin are at this moment in the story on the shoulders of Jesus 
And the father turns his back on his own son and pours out all of his wrath and fury against sin on him. This is a spiritual transaction that is occurring at this moment. There's a physical reality of Jesus hanging there in agony, suffering. This is at a spiritual level, at a spiritual plane, that again, we will never fully understand on this side of eternity. I can't even begin to help us really get our minds around this idea. And we may not even understand it fully on the other side of eternity. I have no idea. But it is at this moment, I believe, that our redemption is being accomplished. As Jesus hangs there and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because this is the moment that the innocent son of God becomes a substitute for you. And for me, takes the, the punishment and the wrath that should have been ours and experiences the separation from God that we should have experienced. If you want to understand a little, it's not going to help you a ton, but maybe it'll give you just an idea. It'll maybe point your thoughts and mind in the right direction. If you want to understand a little of what hell is going to be like, flames are not the biggest problem. The wrath of God and separation from God, that will be your biggest problem. And Jesus is experiencing this here. And so as bad, folks, as bad as the physical suffering of the crucifixion is, and I, I wanted you to see it, I wanted you to understand over these past two Sundays what was going on, it is at this moment, I believe, where the deepest and truest suffering of our Lord occurs right now. The thing that made him tremble with fear in the garden, I believe, it's here when Jesus takes the wrath of God that was rightfully ours upon himself. And I want you to, I didn't put this on the screen because I just want you to listen to it. Listen, listen to Isaiah describe the same exact moment. Now the psalmist described it in, in Psalms 22, and he focused a lot on the details of what's happening, on some of the emotional and physical anguish of our Savior. But listen now to Isaiah describe more the spiritual side of the transaction. It's a passage you know very well. Hopefully you'll hear it a little differently today. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is the person of whom Isaiah is going to speak, for he grew up before him, the Lord, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And yet, despite that rebellion on our parts, the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is here describing the same exact moment now on the spiritual side of the equation. Because this is the moment when the Messiah bears our griefs and when he carries our sorrows, when he takes the striking and smiting of God that was rightly ours to take, when he is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, when he takes that chastisement that God should have laid on us upon himself, all because the eternal plan of God had always been to lay on Jesus the iniquity, the sin of us all. And so Mark, in this one single cry, I think encapsulates a huge amount of significance for us. And folks, if you remember nothing else from today and the stuff I've said so far and the stuff I'll say here before I'm done, I want you to remember this much at least, that what you're reading here is the real suffering of Calvary. It's not the nails. It's not the scourging. It's the wrath of God and separation from God that Jesus endured on our behalf. Unfortunately, though, in the context, it's not really understood. Mark tells us that when some of the readers, or excuse me, the the people who are around hear this, they think he's calling Elijah. So they must have misheard Eloi and thought he was saying Elijah, which is not totally crazy because in their culture, and we talked about this a little in the past, The prophet Elijah was very strongly associated with the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. And so since Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, it's a logical mistake to make. Mark says they run and they dip a sponge, probably attached to a spear or pole. He calls it a reed into a bucket of sour wine. And they they try to give it to him to drink. But some of the others, they're standing there, try to stop him saying, wait, let's see whether or not Elijah is going to come and take him down. You know, maybe Elijah will come. There's no need to wait very long. Mark records the moment of Jesus' death very simply. Verse 37, he utters a loud cry and breathed his last. That's it. And and this is the one place, if I could, and I can, this is the one place I'll make an exception to my desire to let Mark be Mark. I'll bring in one other thing that he says from the cross here. I I think he's referencing in this loud cry, Jesus' shout, it is finished. I mean, if you think about that in, in line with what we're thinking of the deeper significance, Psalm 22 and Isaiah, the transaction is complete. The deed is done. He has carried our sins. He has endured the separation. He has taken all of the wrath. And it, now it's done. The transaction is finished. And now having completed all that the Father gave him to do, Jesus simply breathes his last breath and dies. And Mark now records two immediate events that accompany his death. And I'm I'm just going to go through them, and then I'll try to tie it back in and help you see why. First, verse 38, he tells us that the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, Josephus, remember him? He's that Jewish historian I've quoted a few times along the way to help us understand what's going on in the first century. Josephus records some details about this particular curtain. It's in the temple. And if you're not familiar, I should have gotten a picture. I didn't think of it. The temple is basically divided into two rooms, okay? There's a a holy place and there's an interior room called the Holy of Holies. Now, the normal daily function of the priest is in the holy place. They come in and they put bread and they burn incense and they pray and they do their stuff, okay? But the Holy of Holies, this inner chamber, is a very special place. The only object in that room is the Ark of the Covenant. 
and, and God's presence was supposed to dwell above the Ark of the Covenant. So, so this is the room where God lives, if I can put it in that way in their minds. This is where his presence dwells with the people. And, and to keep that place holy and separate from any defilement, any, any interaction, a curtain, a veil is put in front of it. And this is no normal curtain. This is a tapestry. It's like thick like this, and it's 80 feet tall, Josephus tells us, because that's how tall the temple was. So it's, it goes floor to ceiling. It's huge. And only one time a year could the high priest, he alone, go behind that curtain to offer sacrifice to God. And only then if he brought blood... It, the whole concept is designed to show God as being separate, as being holy, and, and the people as, as being sinful and needing to come before him with sacrifice. It is this curtain now that Josephus, excuse me, not Josephus, Mark and all the other gospel writers record as having torn top to bottom, not, not bottom up. I mean, I think tearing an 80-foot tapestry would be hard in any direction, but, but this one tears top to bottom now. Hold that thought for a moment. He records the second event, event that occurs after the death of Jesus in verse 39 when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, the centurion mentioned here, he is the Roman soldier in charge. If, for all you military folks in here, he would be like an 03 or 04. He's got about 100 men under his control, so he's like a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, uh, and a Lieutenant Commander, sorry, Navy ranks still confuse me. My dad was a Marine. I understood Marine ranks, and the Navy had to be weird. So uh, he's a captain or a major in the Marines. And in the, he, he's, he's not just a Gentile. He's a really important Gentile. He's a man of significance, of stature, of standing. He is a dog, though, to the Jews. As a Gentile, as a Roman soldier, as an occupier, this is a, a man to be hated. And yet... He is the only one in the context to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. The religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, what have they been doing the whole time? Blaspheming, deriding him. They've been blaspheming him. But now a Gentile, a Roman soldier, he's the one who confesses the truth about Jesus. Now, take these two thoughts, curtain tearing, top to bottom, centurion's confession, and consider them in light of the end of Psalm 22 for just a moment. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship where? Before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship where before him shall bow down or bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Notice that two of the results that the psalmist gives as his confidence for the future from the suffering of this one who has been pierced and has been mocked is that one, God's people would come and worship before him. And the emphasis is before as in in his presence. 
not a veil, before him. And number two, that they would do it not alone, not just the children of Israel, but with families from all the earth. (laughs) All the nations would now come, not just the Jews, but Gentiles too. Curtain torn, top to bottom, separation removed. The centurion confesses, truly, this man is the Son of God. You can see instantly, instantly even in the story, that the Lord has not abandoned his afflicted. He has not left him there. Now that Jesus has accomplished the task set before him, now that he has drank the cup to the bitter end, the plan and purpose of God to sacrifice his son for our sins has been fulfilled. However, the plan and purpose of God to now call all of the earth to himself is just beginning. One plan, done. One plan, just starting. And Mark then ends with a detail that's common all four Gospels. He writes, there are also women there looking on from a distance. He names several of them. And he just makes this point in verse 41 that when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him. Many other women did as well. And I won't address that today as we'll talk more about the significance of that over the next couple of weeks. So as you can see here, there's really two stories going on in Mark 15. You've got a surface level story of the events of this day, but there's also a deeper significance as well. As I've already pointed out, the the deeper significance is that as Jesus is dying, as he's suffering there on the cross, a spiritual transaction is taking place, planned by God from before time began, and it is this plan that will purchase our salvation. Jesus died as our substitute to take our sins on himself, and it is that substitutionary death that acts like the mechanism, if you will, for that enables the grace of God to be poured out on us in salvation through faith. Folks, the the gospel itself hinges on this truth. If if you're a Christian, if you're going to claim allegiance to Jesus, you need to recognize that the gospel we preach, the gospel we believe, it hinges on this truth. Jesus isn't dying as an example. He was, as Paul says to the Romans, In 3.25, he was put there as a propitiation, as a sacrifice that is designed to satisfy the wrath of another by his blood to be received by faith. This is the deeper significance of what's going on here in Mark 15. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we just need to stop and acknowledge that the events of the cross are not in and of themselves the main story. They are real, they are important, they are significant. We need to understand them, acknowledge them. But there was a spiritual transaction occurring that day that is the true and real and most significant thing happening. It is through these literal events, these historical events, that you placed our sins on your own son, and you poured out all of the wrath that was aimed at us on him. It is through that sacrifice then that you can forgive us. You couldn't just let the sins go because that would make you unjust. Justice had to be served, and so it was served onto Jesus. You turned your back on your own son and A transaction, a moment that I will never grasp. I I can't even begin to understand. But it is through his sacrifice 
that we are healed. His wounds brought us healing. His suffering brought us victory. And so help us not to forget that. This is the essence of why why we're here this morning, of what we do on a daily basis. It should drive everything about how we live. And so Jesus, please live that life through us. Help us who who have been so freely given your grace and your love to in turn now live our lives for you, the one who died for us. So that as we go forward on a day-to-day basis, we're not, we're not tempted to be drawn away to live our lives for the things of this world, but rather for you and you alone. And so we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the forgiveness it purchased. We thank you for the grace it enabled. We are the recipients of that. It's your kindness and your love. And so, Jesus, we give you this time this morning. May it help us, enable us, convict us to live our lives for you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.